0: back to Building a Fighter. My name is Dr. Austin Shane, sports chiropractor in Scottsdale, Arizona. With me, as always, badass strength coach in Denver, Colorado, Alex Friedman. Alex, how are you doing
1: today? I am doing very well today. It's great. It's a beautiful Sunday morning here in Denver, Colorado. It is the 4th of July. Fireworks are a-popping. It is a good day. Gonna go sit in the pool a little
0: bit. But today, we're getting the day started talking about... Wrestling with biomechanics, we're going to further that episode, um, the most recent episode where we spent literally an hour just talking about technique on wrestling because we kind of nerded out a little bit. We
1: definitely now- <laughs> geeked out on the wrestling. Definitely <laughs> geeked out a little bit.
0: But <laughs> hey, this podcast isn't just about you guys. It's about us, and that's what we want to talk about.
1: <laughs> but today, we're going to get into the
0: content that y'all come for, so the whole biomechanics breakdown. Uh, we'll talk about the strength and conditioning aspects of the shot, whether it be single, double, high crotch, any takedown off the feet, as well as the different injuries that could be prevalent um, and different ways to kind of mitigate those injury risks.
1: So Alex, let's talk about the double leg first. Well, when you think about any shot in wrestling, any type of uh, leg attack, the first thing from a you know biomechanical strength conditioning lens that I see is like single leg stability and strength. Like, mm-hmm. and that... Should be an inescapable truth for almost every athlete. Period. Um, besides, like the powerlifting and weightlifting athletes, and even then, there should be some accessory. Like single leg strength is something that should definitely be developed and a bucket that people put a lot of investment into. Um, the single leg strength, both from the fact that it can balance um imbalances from side to side um we know that there's if there's difference there's injury risk there um but also it's one step more specific to a sport like not that back squats are bad or not that you know bilateral compound exercise is bad they certainly serve their purpose but the more i think the single leg strength is a more applicable and genuine measure of strength where it can be somewhat more specific, but still generalizable enough that it's a general stimulus.
0: Well, and something I feel like kind of gets neglected in the talk of single leg strength is asymmetrical loading as well. Yeah. So we always talk about bipedal or bilateral versus unilateral or single leg strength. Mm-hmm. Rarely what gets talked about is actually a lot of sports isn't single leg in nature. A lot of sport is actually asymmetrically loaded in nature where both feet are on the ground, both feet are cutting. Think about like uh, like our B stance mm-hmm. or a lunge in, in nature where both legs are doing different jobs at the same time, but they're still loaded. So yeah. like, I think personally, single leg strength is awesome in cleaning up movement deficiencies, cleaning up movement patterns, isolating and loading through that one leg to increase the strength. But if we want to take it a step further in specificity, like say if if we so choose, if we want to get sport specific, I would almost ra- argue that asymmetrical loading is the most sport specific we can get because that's very in tune or or uh, very close to a wrestling stance or very close to finishing a shot.
1: Yeah, man, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of um, more, I don't know, awkward or different positioning for the movements. Like you can still have good positioning, even though it's a less... Um, typical setup like a, a wrestling stance and you can just perform deadlifts out of wrestling stamp or like uh, you know a b stance is another way or staggered stance kickstand whatever however you refer to that type of stance um i was a big fan of it even just like in a, a tripod or a bent over row like why would you not get a wrestling stance like what what is the the default from there so um single leg and like branching off of that. Like, and, and when I say single leg, I don't mean, and this might just be a little communication thing. I don't mean like exclusively one leg on the ground.
0: I, I know I was, I just want. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to bring it up just because yeah. single leg is such a strong focus for a lot of people. Yeah. And I feel like it always gets neglected. The asymmetrical loading aspect.
1: Yeah. I love the awkward positioning or the like specific positioning or, or however you want to do that. Just changing it up. Like be strong from everywhere. Like that, that's not, there's never going to be you know, a bad thing. Right. right. So the asymmetrical loading too, if we think about it, we can do like offset carries, we can do offset deadlifts. We can do, you know, like just, um, as- again, like a deadlift and you have a 70 pound kettlebell in one hand and a 20 pound in the other hand, like mm-hmm. that's still a lot of stabilization that has to go on. Um, I believe they're referred to with barbells as like Irish deadlifts or Irish bench press, mm-hmm. um, huge fan. Um, but that goes more into, um like the, the awkward strength bucket or the odd strength or the fluid strength. Um something that I just posted a blog about a couple of weeks ago now. But a, a term he coined. A term I coined. I coined it. Um but in a wrestling shot, think of all of that coming together. Like there's no like there's very little balanced stable, you know, positioning when you're taking a shot. Like you're not, you're not gonna sit there, all right, let me get my feet set under you, let me pick you up, let me you know, there's a a place there, where we would have to meet our general preparation with serving a, a certain purpose, and we can see through, you know, a challenge of logic how it all comes together. But the single leg strength is the the first thing that jumps out to me in the roundabout way. Breaking the action, can you describe fluid strength? Can we can we put words to it? Sure. Um, so fluid strength for me is a a new interpretation of special strengths so special strengths are not the strength that you accumulate or your absolute capacity this fluid strength is the amount of strength that you can actually apply to your sport so let's say we have somebody a wrestling athlete that can deadlift 400 pounds that's their absolute strength that's their max out but when they're shooting a double and picking somebody up off the ground they're in a different position in a different context under different parameters they don't have 400 pounds worth of strength in that double leg. They have, you know, maybe a hundred pounds, maybe 150 pounds, depending on where they're at in this trainable quality, because fluid strength is a trainable quality. I think too many strength coaches and a lot of people doing sport and physical preparation go too far to one end or the other, where they say, well, we only need to train the special strength, or we only need to do the specific stuff. Or on the opposite end, we only need to get stronger. We only need to do our compound lifts where in reality on that continuum, we need to be a little bit more skewed towards the special strength. um, But with still in mind, the idea of the absolute strengths. So fluid strength is my concept of being strong from everywhere and being able to apply your strength that you've built into every position, regardless of context. So we need to build the absolute strength first. That's a given, right? But from there, we need to be able to apply that absolute strength anywhere and everywhere. And I think that's a hugely trainable quality specifically for MMA, because there's so many different dynamic, um, odd and awkward positions. So uh, Bo Sandoval is on a podcast too, talking about odd strength and building up that type of movement capacity, where I think fluid strength is Better because it demonstrates a little bit of movement capability while portraying the strength. So I want to be able to deadlift 400 pounds. Sure. But I also want to be able to transfer, you know, maybe 300 of that pounds into our double leg. Um, but that's only going to happen if I train, you know, for like a better turn train down from the deadlift into like a walking lunge. And then I load mm. that up to however much capacity is can be handled, or we take the walking lunge. And then all of a sudden we make it a, lateral to a um forward lunge and that almost mimics a shot or finishing off a shot a little bit more um and then we can even take it another step further and like take a a forward lunge and then into a single leg lateral box jump or something Mm -hmm. that again we gear it more towards like a special developmental exercise and you know even if you want the research end of it, like Verkashansky, Bondarchuk, like all these people say that we need to spend majority of our time in our special strengths or special developmental exercises. So we can sit in that area where we're doing the walking lunges, where we're doing the lateral box jumps, where we're doing a little bit more med ball ground and pound type of work or things that are more specific to sport. I think that's where we need to marinate more than time under the barbell in a back squat or time, uh, you know, bench pressing. Like those things are necessary, but that's not where we need to live. We need to live in this special strength, fluid strength place.
0: A hundred percent. And then we can extrapolate that into back to the shots and we can use that like, Hey, a lot of wrestling shots are position specific isometrics, right? That's it's being cool. able to over, or I guess we can even take a step further overcoming isometrics. So we have to be able to overcome somebody sprawling on top of us. We need yeah. to be able to overcome somebody's hips, just boom, being a fucking brick wall. That we have to get through because if you're wrestling any good wrestler, there's two options. If you hit a shot, right, they're either mm-hmm. going to sprawl or they're going to scramble. Yes, those are the those are the two options that are occurring. And if you're wrestling somebody, if, you, if you're going up against a muscle hamster, I would almost guarantee that they are going to sprawl on you. Yep. And those hips are going to be heavy. Think about Chad Mendes. If we're thinking yeah. MMA specific wow. wrestling, that motherfucker has hips from hell. Shooting on him is going to be really hard. But how do we get through that? How do we how do we train that quality? And it doesn't have to be everything specific, right? We can train that quality, like Alex said, with absolute strength. We can build up your capacity. We can raise your ceiling and increase your overall strength. But we need that strength to also translate. And that's where we get these isometrics in, where I need to be really strong in this one position. We're going to hold that one position for a prolonged period of time with a set amount of weight or set amount of reps, whatever it may be.
1: Well, and I really like the isometric piece that you added in because we know that holding position is such a huge part of wrestling grappling jujitsu, all these types of sports um but what i want to highlight too is again if we look at more specific type of exercises you're holding an isometric with one part of your body where the other part of your body is required and asked to do dynamic movement Mm -hmm. right and that's like that's forever and always been the like the um, leaning in the favorite zercher squat of any strength coach that sees wrestling, like oh, we'll do a zercher reverse lunge, or we'll do the zercher position because you have to be strong. And like I agree with that. I think it's overly popular now, but it is useful in the sense of we need to be dynamically isometric, or we need to be isometrically strong in one part of our body while our other part of our body is dynamically moving and like think of finishing a single leg you need to have the upper body and core strength to hold the leg while your feet can still move and you know step back into a dump or um Mm -hmm. power through into a bar cigar whatever you got like so the isometrics holding position the overcoming isometrics like huge fan i love doing those types of movements but i would still label them as general Which, again, are necessary. General exercises are very necessary. But then when we take it to the next level, it's like, how can we isolate one part of the body for strength while we have the other part of the body actively and dynamically moving? Which, again, it's another challenge and fun puzzle to figure out as a strength coach.
0: It's like what we talked about in the last episode with dissociation. That's kind of why we got off on a tangent and talked about wrestling for a whole hour. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sure. uh but no i completely agree it's it's a very general it's a general skill like it's it brings it back to fucking caldez i feel like a lot of shit goes back to him and I mean, people take a it smart or, dude yeah, smart he's dude. a fucking smart dude great strength coach but it comes back to there's three there's three phases of a, of a movement technically four if you want to get specific and all the phases are important depending mm. on the certain circumstance and just knowing that Positional isometrics are extremely important for our grappling. And that's where like, like I'm very lucky that my facility is getting a flywheel coming soon. We're getting the Kratos nice. flywheel by Kabuki. Ooh. Comes in, in mid-July. Dude, yeah. dual access, fucking Chris Duffin with the beautiful woodwork. Top oh, of the line, dude. Yeah. I love this shit. Um yeah, but it's coming in. It's coming in, and one of one of their marketing tools is that it creates, it's it's very, I guess, made specifically specifically for the grappling community. That's one of their marketing tools is because it helps you overcome these different, I guess, isometric positions. It helps you overcome these different stick points in that movement. Okay. So one thing that we can progress from the isometric is if you use a flywheel tool or something like that, where it's it's however much force you put into it, you have to then accept backwards. That's also a very grappling specific movement right if i hit a fucking hard-ass double leg those hips the only way they're going to stop me are to come back at the same rate i need to be able to accept that load i need to be able to accept and not just accept it but overcome it and then switch on a dime think about if i hit a double leg they stop my hips and boom i need to hit that swisher step or that cut in order to Mm -hmm. get to the side and then hit a a nice little like peekaboo if you will, where I'm cutting out to the left side, I'm getting on top and then I can go into my guts, whatever it may be. And that all comes from being able to not just produce the force, but also accept the force and know what to do with it. And that comes in not just strength, but also speed.
1: And I want to highlight one thing too, talking about specific to our grappling population. um, And the the people are going to label me a hater right now, but our grappling population is so bad at holding fundamental basic positions. 100%. you get like it's almost like a blessing or like a curse in disguise. Like in a wrestling sense or in a grappling sense, you get so good at holding technical specific positions that you get really bad at base level, fundamental health and wellness, positions. like holding a split squat. Like yep. you think about a split squat, you like a wrestler should be good at holding a split squat, not the case, you know, or um, holding a TRS row or, uh, you know, just. Holding fundamental position, like, again, that's why I'm a big fan of the isometric positioning because we need to get better at those, you know, level one blocks of position before we get to the the more advanced technical stuff. But I'm a huge fan of what you're saying with the overcoming and the uh, training multiple phases because forever and always the emphasis is on the concentric phase of movement and it Mm -hmm. should be, but the flywheel and, and tools like that give us a method to... Um, attack in a more dynamic sense, the eccentric and amortization phase of the movement, right?
0: Well, and so something I nerd out on a lot and and I love explaining to my athletes is you can only produce as much force as you can accept. That is rule number one of the brain, right? Is I am never going to hurt myself. That is the brain's number one job is to stay out of home. So think about like the movement of a broad jump. You can't broad jump further than you can stop the broad jump. You probably in most athletes can probably jump further than they think they can, but their brain won't allow that neural recruitment. They won't allow the muscle recruitment, the power to get there because it doesn't know that it can safely stop. So how do we build this? How do we build these different things? Well, guess what? The eccentric phase. Yes. Bring it all the way to the third phase, right? Sure. Because however much force that you generate, you also have to accept on the way down. You have to accept it strong, stable, and in good biomechanics, right? So training, that's why those box step-offs work. That's why different programming techniques of the landing phase work. That's why why it's a thing.
1: Box step-offs work for a week and a half, and then you need to change the stimulus because that's too rudimentary.
0: I know, but you know what I mean?
1: (laughs) <laughs> just like to th- throw shade quick. That's good.
0: That's why. That's why landing phases work. That's why landing exercises work. That's why what I'm bringing it back to the flywheel. That's why the flywheel. That's why the concept works is because your brain needs to be able to accept the load that you generate. That's the only way that you can produce more force, produce more power. Yeah. So something I nerd out on, and I love to highlight because people forget that it's not just about how much force you can generate. It's how much force that you can stop safely. That's your actual cutoff. That's your ceiling.
1: Well, and that's, that's again a point that I I try and explain with the box jump to all of my athletes forever and always. Like, we we don't do a box jump to like jump high as you can onto the box. We do a (laughs) box jump because it catches you on the way down. It gives you a lot less stimulus and stress to land, which is. Again, this is, this is another thing that boom my mind when I started analyzing kind of movement in sport. Like, when does everybody get injured? It's on the landing of something. Mm-hmm. It's on the okay. the contact with the ground. It's on the cut where they're interacting with the ground. So the box jump just saves you from that hard impact that the potentially could be from just a straight vertical jump, which mm-hmm. again has a lot to do with force absorption on that end. But getting back to takedowns and uh, I guess kind of fundamental strength training qualities of of the takedowns, um, did you have anywhere next that you wanted to go, Austin?
0: I think we could highlight the pull.
1: Sure, um, which is always overlooked.
0: Yeah, I feel like I mean, not that you want to be shooting with your arms a whole bunch, but we need we need some sort of pull. Like that's mm-hmm. that's part of the movement, right? So integrating it's actually a, a good highlighting point is integrating. Triple extension with a pulling movement. Think about like a, I call it like a Kaiser Rippen row, and or, being able to.
1: Or I'm gonna lose you here. Or a clean.
0: Or a clean, I, dude. <laughs> all right, here's the deal. I I don't hate cleans. I just think so many fighters do them as reverse curls that there's better things to do unless I know I'm going to have this fighter for a prolonged period of time.
1: You know, I I agree with you that there's more accessible and probably better alternatives. I will agree yeah. with you there. Yeah. It's just,
0: it is such a highly technical skill and a skill in nature. And yeah. we've talked about this.
1: No, I don't say yeah, we did a whole episode. We don't need to get into weeds. It, it,
0: it's I just, if I don't have them for more, if I have them for two months, if I don't know, they're sticking around, it doesn't make sense to waste a month on teaching them how to clean.
1: Yeah. <laughs> right. You're right.
0: Especially in camp. Mm-hmm. But like something I've been doing a whole bunch is like a Kaiser rip and row. It's something mm-hmm. that I picked up from, who did I see it first from? Uh, Corey Beasley, I think, uh, Fight Camp Conditioning. I saw him doing it where they drop down, they're in the bottom end of a the squat, they're actually loading up into a little bit of thoracic rotation as well. They're going full triple extension and rowing backwards on their Versa Pulley. You can do it on a Kaiser, you can do it on a pulley, a regular pulley system.
1: Do it with sleds.
0: Do Yep, yeah, you can do it with sleds.
1: I love doing it with sleds. I sh- I, yeah.
0: And turn it, you can turn that into conditioning if you're doing it with sleds too, just yeah. going down and back and add that into our conditioning phase. Yep. But stuff like that, where we're mixing in hip movement with actual pulling man- maneuvers, mm-hmm. that's going to integrate that pattern a little bit better. And then we can also, if we need to build the capacity of the row, if we need to build up the absolute capacity of the strength, we can add in our prone rows. We can add in our seal rows. We can add in our bent over rows, um, all these different aspects to build up the pulling maneuver of the pull and the strength in that, I
1: guess. Yeah. Well, I think uh, one of the biggest reasons that you would have to, um, build the absolute capacity or start thinking about, um, Mm -hmm. the generalizing the row type of pattern is that because again, wrestlers in general are not the best shoulder biomechanically sound athletes. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're all pulling from our traps. We're all, you know, hunched up and shoulder blades into the ears type of posture. Um, Mm -hmm which means that we're going to pull with our traps, which is more efi- effective or maybe a more efficient technically and tactically, but does not yield us benefits and returns health and longevity wise. So mm-hmm. we go back to the square one of the basic of the prone rows of the bent over rows of chest supported rows to teach athletes to use their whole shoulder blade, their lats. I mean, pull with your lats, right? Like biggest one of the biggest, strongest upper body muscles that, exist. Yep. Use your lats to pull, please. Um, that's again, <laughs> pull, I made a post just this last weekend. It's just like all about fundamentals and it, it drives me crazy. Like watching people do pull-ups, but use your lats when you do a pull-up, like, please. I um,
0: argue with people so much. Like we, <laughs> we program, uh, we're programmed for a a team and we were debating on if we were going to put in weighted pull-ups or not. Yeah. Cause I see them done so poorly. And mm-hmm. the reason why I see them done so poorly and this is a little bit in the weeds, but stick with us here. So pull-ups when you do a pull-up, what should you do? Should you do it with a arched back or should you do it with a stable surface? If you say the first one, you're an idiot.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I think similarly, should you do a pull-up with a shoulder shrug the whole time? or so should you take time to set your shoulders down? Yeah. Exactly. Easy easy answers.
0: I guess. And actually, I guess it all depends on your goal is the actual, the actual answer, right? If you're trying to do just lat recruitment and just increase the lat overall lat growth, arch your back, that's fine. That puts the lat in actually a more advantageous position to promote growth of the lat. Or are we trying to integrate a vertical pulling maneuver into a stable surface which makes it more transferable in nature that's what we're trying to do for athletes not for same. bodybuilders
1: yeah also seems like it but um but yeah like just bare bones fundamentals like setting your shoulder blade like pulling you know, through your lats when you do the pull up like that type of stuff is so overlooked because we want to make workouts harder because we want to get more reps like you know like every day in high school before practice my high school coach we had to do 40 push-ups 40 pull-ups and uh 40 v-sits right like you can debate all day what you need to do on that and stuff but like it taught me a lot about how to actually do push-ups and pull-ups like because you can cheat all day through push-ups and pull-ups and say do 100 or whatever but if you're just doing 40 like you can actually get better at doing those right and like you see you know, especially in high school, is an epidemic. And just people cranking out push-ups and pull-ups, and it's like, but none of them, like you're doing, you know, half cent pull-ups versus right. like ten cent pull-ups.
0: Work without intention is just a waste.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. Tangent. Anyway. Yeah.
0: Um, uh, let's see. So that's two main main concepts for yeah. shots, right? We need the pulling maneuver integrated with our hip extension. I got
1: one more, um, and, okay. uh, and then we can go wherever you want to go. Hold on, Sorry, hold on. Let me let me finish this. Hmm.
0: Asymmetrical loading slash single leg loading, and then pulling mixed with hip maneuvers.
1: Now go. Change of direction, something. Change of direction does not get thought about on a from a strength conditioning lens into a wrestling shot. That is how you finish takedowns you cut the angle, right? You cut the angle, you, you make a technical move to swisher your your knees, to, um, step back on a dump to drive through. Like, yes, there is a, a one specific market for a drive double where you blast people, you know, off the map, but that's only one point when you get a push out, right. Mm -hmm. Versus if I cut an angle and actually get a takedown, it's worth two points. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's worth mentioning that changing direction and, um, identifying that is a huge skill to have for takedowns Um, and training that in the weight room doesn't have to look like our field-based sports change of direction it can still be some lateral movement and ankle stability it can still be like some uh, multi-directional plyometrics it can be Um, rotational type of exercises where we're doing like a rotational deadlift or med ball work in a rotational transverse plane. Um, But I think that that is a a worth noting capability that if we teach our athletes how in close space to accept and put out force again in different planes of motion, then it's going to make our takedowns more effective.
0: So how are we doing that?
1: Some Uh, examples. It's just, I just said like multi-directional plyometrics, like they're probably my, my biggest go-to, um, rotational, like we talked about flywheel pulls, like our uh, Cybex machine where you're rotating on your, um, row. Um, I get into the frontal plane, lateral lunges, like just simple things like that.
0: And then where would you, if I'm just trying to make it more directly applicable, like plug and play, where would you throw these into your programming? If you're doing that, would you throw that in as a, like I do a lot of these as like a warm up. Like mm-hmm. I'll add in multi multi-direc- like multi directional plyometrics as a almost like a low grade warm up.
1: If you yeah. will, yeah, I, I do a lot of ankling in that sense or a lot of ankle jumps um, yep. in the warm up type area. But it's for me governed by where you're at in the progression of it and um, what general stimulus we're trying to get out of the workout. So if that's something we've progressed to be a focal point in the workout. Maybe we're loading a lateral lunge super heavy, or maybe we're doing, you know, skater jumps for distance, or maybe we're doing single leg broad jumps or rotational broad jumps. Um, some of those things can like take the like prime spot after the warm up or first exercise, our first power development drill. Like that's, that's a lot of the times if those are, um, we're in like a power phase, so that's what I'm training for versus um, if we're just starting on that progression and they, they can blend their way into some more accessory work. Um, so teach a lateral lunge, teach, um, like do a skater jump with a stick and make them hold and, uh, stabilize the ankle sta- uh, ankle position. and um, so depends what context you're going after, but, um, let's say generally towards the front end of the workout. Right. So I'm going to talk about
0: healthcare. Yeah, no,
1: That's why I wanted to try and sneak that in, <laughs>
0: um, talking about healthcare. So realistically with wrestling shots in general there's we have to think about two parties we got to think about the person getting shot on and the person shooting we'll talk about first the person shooting so different different things that can arise as far as shooting um one is going to be we'll talk about the shoulders first so say you get sprawled upon you take that shot boom you get stretched out and your arms are into essentially maximal shoulder flexion so Overhead. Yes. And you're stuck in that sprawl. Your arms are outstretched. A lot of the times this can actually lead if depending on how hard the sprawl is, um, how I guess how dynamic in nature the movement was. This can lead to surprisingly enough stingers. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times when you do this over time, I get athletes tell me, hey, my shoulder feels like it's burning. Well, guess what? That's not a good thing. Anytime you feel a burning sensation in that area, whether it be the shoulder, down the arm or into the neck, you know that that's probably neurologic in nature. So we go from there and we can extrapolate how do we try to fix this? Is it from the neck or is it from a distal nerve? Right? Is it is it central in nature? Is it potentially disc because the other thing that occurs with getting sprawled on is sheer force on the neck. So direct impact through the cervical spine, that lower cervical spine, and if there's pressure in the area that can irritate that central stimulus or that central area causing pressure on the nerve, boom, fire sensation, or is it actually from an outstretched arm Boom, and that dynamic movement, you guys can't see me, but I did the movement mm-hmm. and, <laughs> uh, and that stinger in nature, if it truly is a stinger versus central, it causes that fire in the neck and down the, air. that's the first step of trying to distinguish what's going on from there. Then we can go about, Hey, is it, if it's spine, we go across our our nerve or our central like disc um, treatments, McKenzie, repetitive end range loading, all X, Y, and Z, um, and then strengthening the cervical spine. Or do we go about the shoulder and we go through our neurodynamic pathways and trying to figure out, Hey, what part of the nervous system is outstretched? What part of the nervous system was in turn injured and, or inflamed and trying to figure out where, if it's hypoxia, that could be causing irritation, or is it a tension injury? Is it a sliding injury? All these different pathways. But figuring out the nervous system in general is the first step if they're feeling that burning sensation after getting a hard sprawled upon. Next, going into, I already kind of touched on it, cervical disc herniations. That happens a lot from getting sprawled upon. It's almost like sometimes you can get a whiplash effect, actually. So say you take a single leg your head is up where it should be, they hit you with a heavy-ass sprawl, boom, their ASIS cranks your face, and you almost get a really fast boom. They move your head to the side, you try to get your head back. That fast movement causes irritation in the lower cervical spine or the upper cervical spine, and that can lead to, if it's in the lower cervical spine, those disc injury or that disc patho mechanics. From there, we go about the same way. We're trying to figure out what range of motion is best for them, strengthening it up isometrically, as well as end range loading. So chin retractions, think about Ian Kutalaba versus uh, Khalil Roundtree at that weigh-in, where Kutalaba yells in his face, and he just goes and slides it back like he's got terrible breath. Uh, That's what we're probably our first line of defense, if that occurs, right? We're trying to get that chin retraction and trying to, Decenter, or I guess, uh, yeah, desensitize that area. Those two are very, I guess, um, they're very similar in nature. A lot of the, the treatment that we're going to go about is very similar on that. But now we're going to move down to the hip. A lot of times if we're getting sprawled, we can also get, cr-
1: yep, what up? Before we move on to hip, I'm thinking just in a, in a neck sense. How much credence would you give to isometrically training neck strength as far as treatment for that or as far as Maybe not treatment, but maybe like down the line progression, preventative stuff.
0: I do a good amount. Um, I, I really personally like the iron neck um, mm-hmm. because it is a, you can multi-directionally load the neck isometrically. That's mm-hmm. what I like about that iron neck. Um, but I, I wouldn't do it typically in the acute phase. My, my first, personally, when I think about treating a neck injury, whether in, in neurologically in nature, so disc or neurodynamics. My first goal is to give them positions of relief. So find a position that's going to help them the best they possibly can take away as much pain as possible, mm-hmm. and then find a movement that they can repetitively do that decreases the pain. So chain retractions, neck rotations, um, potentially it could be a neurodynamic stretching, tightening, sliding, whatever it may be of of the median ulnar or radial nerve, um, but trying to figure out a a movement that decreases their pain. Once we can drop that pain down and they're doing that for at least one to two, one to two visits, but we can drop that. That's when we, I personally start isometrically loading the neck in different positions, whether it be like loading them on a yoga ball on the wall and we can have them leaning into it and holding that position. I can hold their head up. They're leaning back to me. I'm holding them from the base of their occiput. They're staying in a chin retraction the entire time Um, um, or whatever it may be. I just, a lot of people try to do these. A lot of people want to use a neck harness yep. uh, and try to do like. Like I always hear like the yeses and noes and all these different things, and I feel as though the people that are doing that don't really understand the the mechanics of the disc because yep. that is just putting a shear force on top of shear
1: force. That and and I think of too, like we were talking about muscle actions earlier, like it's a lot more important for your neck to be able to isometrically contract and hold position or stabilize versus constantly create a hundred percent. And, and well,
0: it's just, I completely agree. And that's why I feel like, like I talked about earlier, the asymmetric loading is so overlooked. Exactly what you're bringing up. I I personally think isometrically loading the spine, the cervical spine, but the spine in general, but isometrically loading the cervical spine is so overlooked and not just healthcare, but also training, using yeah. that as a, as a mechanism to strengthen the neck. And I think it's overlooked because it's boring as fuck. Nobody wants to sit there and do a shitload of isos. Yeah. But it's so much more beneficial to isometrically load the, the cervical spine than to do neck bridges <laughs> or or variations of a neck harness. It's It just makes a lot more sense for what's the job of the neck. The job of the neck is to try to support the brain and stabilize the top part of the spine. That, that's yeah. the job of the neck. So why don't we just load it in a way that is most beneficial for that, which is right. isometrically loaded. Right.
1: And I think neck bridges are funny because you are isometrically loading a neck, but you're just doing it in the worst position possible. Right? Yeah. You're isometrically loading into compression. And then everyone that I talk to, regardless of, you know, coach, fighter, status, training, actively training, like, neck bridges used to work so great for me. We're awesome. <laughs> and it's like, it's like <laughs> if, they, if they stopped being awesome, at some point, maybe they weren't awesome in the, in the beginning.
0: Right. Yeah. They were awesome when you were 12 and that compression on your disc wasn't an issue.
1: Yeah. No problem. All right. Yeah. Move on to the hip. Sorry. I derailed you.
0: You're good, dude. I love talking about this. Sh- I like when you ask questions. because Otherwise I just ramble about healthcare. Cause I can talk yeah. about this shit literally no, for days. Nobody likes that. Nobody, not even me. I know <laughs> I bore myself when I talk about fine-tuned healthcare stuff. So essentially uh,
1: you shouldn't really talk on the podcast at all. Shut up. <laughs> I don't I have the to... charisma to carry this podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, but talking about the hip it, so boom, there's two, two main things that could happen. Um, is it actually the hip? It's very, very similar to the neck and the shoulder. Is it actually the hip or is it the low back? Right? So if we get sprawled upon, is it, Hey, we just had somebody sprawl upon a rounded low back and that's making my hip feel painful, almost yeah. like quote unquote sciatica which is probably just a disc injury because when they sprawl upon a a rounded spine, guess what? That's another human body weight on top of your low back in a position that we know is prone to disc herniations and or irritating. Um, So a lot of the times that hip pain that you feel after a wrestling match probably isn't actually hip pain unless there's, unless somebody was cranking on your hip and like a bow and arrow, most of the time, it's probably going to be your low back. That's referring down to your hip. Um, or it could be a hip. It could be like, like I said, somebody bow and arrowing you think about freestyle wrestling, they're moving all the way through. They're trying to hit that repetitively. You're stuck into hip extension and a lot of wrestlers don't have hip extension in the first place. So that's something that I like to, I like to work on a lot with wrestlers and with fighters in general that's why I do a lot of cars. That's why I do a lot of, uh, at, at, that's where FRC shines, I think is promoting hip internal rotation and hip extension.
1: Yeah. I like, um, if we think that we we're talking about single leg earlier. If we think about like a rear foot elevated position, just mm-hmm. planting the knee on the ground, using that as a, as a stretch. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think hip extension in general, because you're so often stuck in a hip flexion position
0: for sure. So. And and getting that hip extension and, and really teasing out is it the spine or is, because, as, as we know, as healthcare providers, we if it's the Carl Levitt quote that I say all the time, like he who only treats the site of pain is lost, mm-hmm. right? That's that's not what we're looking at. We want to, if, if we're looking at a hip, we always have to look at the spine, look at the knee. If we're looking at the knee, we always got to look at the hip, look at the ankle, look at the spine. If we're looking at the ankle, we got to look all the way up the chain. The same thing applies for these different injuries after a wrestling shot or after somebody had been wrestling. So we're looking at the spine, we're looking at the hip. We tease that out. If we know it's the spine, it's going to be very similar to what we did on the neck, find a position of relief, whether that be extension, whether that be sideline, whether that be uh, neurodynamics, if you're laying on your side, opening up the IVF for the nerve to breathe a little bit. um, A lot of the times it is extension because wrestlers are stuck in flexion all the time. Think about my wrestling stance when I was a wrestler. I literally was just rounding my back. I had lumbar kyphosis the entire time. Um, so a lot of the times it's actually the back, but then if it is the hip and we tease that out through our different testing systems, then we try to promote the hip. Like maybe we're trying to build hip extension. Maybe we're trying to load isometrically load the hip to start, or maybe we just jump in something that I know heresy to say, maybe it's, uh, very low grade injury, we just jump into strengthening the fuck out, it, right? We just jump into strengthening additioning because we know that exercise actually as long as it's beneficial and in a range that's not painful, if we are just poking the bear, exercise actually drops pain because it goes up a very similar neural pathway. So crazy. we can jump we can jump into our deadlifts. It's it's crazy when we actually load the hip beneficially, how much hip pain goes away.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well that's I think that's the the key phrase is load the hip beneficially. Like this is not a, you know, trap bar two hundred pound deadlift that you're jumping into. This is like a kettlebell fifty pound deadlift that we're But
0: but that's the thing. It I agree, but sometimes it might be a trap bar 200, 250 hundred and fifty pound deadlift. Depends on the athlete, right? Once and you, you teach them how to mechanics. load
1: beneficially.
0: Oh hundred percent. That's what I'm saying. If they already know how to like I'm um, I work with a uh I work with a fighter actually who very strong individual but had some hip pain. Yeah. And the best way we found to rehab him was we threw him in a trap bar deadlift. It had three hundred pounds on the bar oh, and right. but he he already knew the pattern. Like if, yeah. if somebody doesn't know the pattern, or if somebody doesn't know how to hinge, somebody doesn't know the pull from the bottom of the glute, top of the hamstring, this doesn't work. But this specific individual did. So I got to skip all the fucking kettlebell steps and all, all the go. low grade stuff. Yeah. We know we have to beneficially load the tissue. How to, it, and that's different. And, and I t- there's a concept N equals one. For the people that don't understand, that means that you can't just generalize treatment care or care for, I guess, multiple people. Every single person, because of the human condition, is going to be treated and needs to be treated different. Even though there's these, I guess, similarities in treatment. Mm-hmm. A lot of the same treatments work for different people. Sometimes you need to do different things. And for this individual, we got to skip all those steps because that was actually underloading the tissue. That wasn't yeah. actually providing any stimulus because the said it. principle still applies to healthcare.
1: Yeah. No, I get you. No, I get you now when you're talking about like actually creating a stimulus versus, yeah, I get you. You're good. And that's, ac- that's right. actually
0: a future podcast we should probably have is the said principle, like I said, still applies to healthcare. It's, yeah. it's no matter what, if you don't understand the said principle, specific adaptation to impose demands, you, you don't really understand how to rehab a muscle because rehab mm-hmm. is just the said principle to a lower degree depending or a higher degree depending on the athlete because you still need a, a provocative stimulus to promote growth and adaptation.
1: Oh yeah. It's just like, like you're just saying with your deadlift match the, the stimulus to the individual in front of you. Like if you have this athlete who can deadlift 500 pounds or whatever, but they're coming with hip pain, um, not from the deadlifting, but, um, regardless, and then do what I say, you put them on a 50 pound kettlebell deadlift. Like that might be beneficial if they don't know how to deadlift, but right. if you're trying to actually, like you said, load and stimulate the tissue, need more than 50 pounds.
0: Oh, dude. One of my favorite stories, anecdote real quick. One of my favorite stories is I was shadowing Phil's, uh, at Phil Snell's clinic up in Portland, who he's like, he's the low back guy. He yeah. he's fix your own back as his course. He's got one of the best continuing education courses out there. If you're a healthcare person, haven't taken it, take that shit. It changes the game. But I was, I was shadowing one of his doctors. Um, and he literally, there was this like 82 year old woman walks in fucking hot disc, they figured out the disc. This is her second visit. She comes back in on that visit. They had a 35 minute appointment in 35 minutes. She went from a four out of 10 to a zero out of 10. And the primary treatment was a kettlebell deadlift, a hundred uh no, 115 pound kettlebell deadlift. 80 year old, wo- 80 year old woman. Yeah, and as that as was as. just the, that was the right stimulus for the right person. She learned how to hinge on the first visit. They applied the hinge and then they applied the said principle that said principle then dropped her pain and by grooving that pattern and loading the right tissues this is why like banded glute bridges work this is why all these different warm-up the potentiation exercise this these are why mm-hmm. these things these different things work and it can just be applied to healthcare. and i feel like so many healthcare individuals stray away from they want to stay in corrective exercise purgatory
1: well that's exactly what everyone says to say that's why they don't work too as yeah. if you're trying to mislabel them or like uh, you miss the stimulus by doing the same low grade corrective over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again you never progress it or you never you know actually find the beneficial stimulus like you know i can say i want to get make an athlete stronger and like the strength will shore up their joints or the strength will alleviate some of the pain but then then we keep keep you know stopping oh he can't deliver more than 200 pounds
0: yeah it doesn't make sense yeah right? right so that and that's just something that needs to grow as we go mm-hmm. of people need to realize that programming and and strength and conditioning and all these different things is just another lens of rehab
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's another yep. way to load a person and to make that it make everything we do as beneficial as possible yeah but off my soapbox sorry sure that's something that always bugs me sure you're talking about hips I know yeah. Um, moving to the, uh, I mean, hips in general, there's a couple of different things, right? Low back pathology, we already talked about hip into extension. And then we also get wrestlers get our, co- I guess, labored with hip labrum issues. See what I did there? Labored in labrum. I know. You're not. not clever. <laughs> but labor, labral issues are very common with wrestlers. Um, and the pathomechanics of that are, hey, we have this, think about a ball, a ball and socket joint, the socket is cartilaginous tissue. The socket is the labrum, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not the bone isn't actually the socket. The socket is this labral tissue of sorts that can get ripped, torn. And the unfortunate thing about hip labrums are that they're not very highly vascularized. So what that means is it's, it takes a very long time to heal because there's not a lot of blood flow to then heal the tissue because the only way to heal tissue is get nutrients and and oxygen to the area if we can't get nutrients and oxygen because the only way to get that is through the blood or i guess direct injection but for the most part through the blood unless you have a shitload of money um you you can't get that oh and over time it has to heal or we get that surgical maneuver and try to close it up in general so a lot of the times if we have a wrestler with a hip labral issue for the most part, unless it's a minor tear, there's going. it's going to be an arthroscopic surgery of, of sorts, unless yeah. it's a full labral r- repair, in which case it'll be a very large surgery.
1: Yeah. And now, what? just quick question on that. Like, I, And I've heard, I am not so well-versed in the research, that there's a lot of hip labrums that are torn but asymptomatic. Is that...
0: A hundred percent. Yeah, hip yeah. and shoulder labrums. Yeah. Um, so there are a lot, and that's where pain doesn't always uh, correlate with, I guess, injury. That injury is yeah. not the right word, with with damage. That's yeah. where the whole pain science community gets in there, where pain doesn't, or I guess pain doesn't always equal damage. Yeah. And sometimes damage doesn't always equal pain. Yeah. And that's where those neural pathways don't always correlate. Um, is but, that a problem? Uh, what do you mean?
1: If I have a torn hip labrum, but it's asymptomatic. No. Yeah. The, no. yeah. I know mean, that, that was just I, my general I, understanding, but.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's easy to equate to the shoulder because there's a lot more research done because baseball is so prevalent. So I'll I'll stick with that. But like in order to I think I think the numbers like I think like 90 over 90 miles an hour in order to throw over 90 miles an hour, you have to have a small tear in your labrum unless you have a very specific genetic structure and genetic makeup. Yeah. So for, for the average individual, for the average pitcher, you have to be, you have to have a small tear in your shoulder labrum to throw over 90 miles an hour because of the whipping mechanism uh, that, that gets you to that range of motion and gets you to that velocity. Yeah. And the same thing can be said about kickers. Actually, if you want to extrapolate this away from grappling and into striking, I would, I would probably postulate that one boy Thompson may have a small tear in his labrum. I don't know. I have no idea. But if we take the same thing, where the, the whipping net mechanism yeah. is what generates force, I would say that our heavy kickers, are guys that can generate so much velocity with their feet, they probably have some small tear in their labor, in some way, shape, or form. Think about MVP, our karate style fighters, or our yeah. Muay Thai fighters. Is that painful? Yes or no? If it's painful, that's an issue. If it's not painful, then who the fuck cares? It's helping. It's actually helping them, not hurting them. Right. So why? And that's where like people always, uh, I this will be a very short this is where people always want images images are great but images can also pop up shit that mean nothing it's gray hair of an area like like osteo or osteoarthritis of the spine degenerative disc disease all these different terms really don't mean shit yeah right yeah <laughs> like it's just gray hair of the spine is all it is it could just be gray hair of the hip if you're a pr- repetitive kicker it could turn right. into an issue. It could not. But if, it, if it's not an issue, why are we making it an issue? And that's where getting an image all the time may not be the right thing.
1: Right. No, I get that.
0: But yeah. So anyways, healthcare, realistically, a lot of the times with shooting, shooting injuries, it can be disc. The, the too long didn't read the TLDR is mm-hmm. a lot of times it could be disc, whether it be the cervical spine or the lumbar spine. Check that first. That's always going to be the thing that you want to check um, on the forefront because If you just treat the shoulder and don't check the neck, well, guess what? You could be leaving stuff on the table and you might not be getting anywhere. So check it first. It's pretty quick. Mm
1: -hmm. Then if
0: it's not that, we can extrapolate down to, hey, is it a nerve or is the actual tissue in the area? And those are easy tests to run um, if if you're a healthcare provider. But trying to distinguish between neural and or uh, muscular or anatomical in nature, um, I guess skeletal is the right word, Mm -hmm. skeletal in nature versus neural. Um, And then from there, it's very easy rehab protocols to isometric loading, loading, maybe you have to get strength conditioning in there, but trying to turn isolated movements and then turn them into compound movements as best you can and benefiting the F.
1: How much on the shot, and I know this is um, getting a little bit long, but um, how much on the shot do you see instances of like ankle uh, injuries, rolling (sighs) instability? I
0: personally haven't seen it a whole bunch. Um, yeah. I know it, it is a thing, um, but I think it's grossly over, not overreported, but grossly overthought that ankles get hurt in, in shots. Yeah. I typically don't see that as much as I see the hip or hip spine, shoulder or neck, but obviously it does happen. Um, And typically that's going to be an inversion ankle sprain for the most part. If you are taking that shot, they're going to push you back. That back foot is going to be what's what say you try, you hit a double leg, you try to step up and that back foot is what gets inverted because they're pushing your entire body weight over that foot as you're trying to step up. Um, And for the most part, that's just standard inversion ankle sprain rehab, um, trying to mobilize the joint, get nutrients to the joint. So move it in an open chain as best you can. Um, and then working towards all the way from open chain loading to different foot loading techniques and closed chain, and then all the way into plyometrics.
1: Yeah. And then that's, again, I guess kind of that, that's why I'm aware of it is because I do a lot of ankle specific work for all of my athletes, but grapplers as well, because the ankle has to be so dynamically strong and repetitively um, integrable in super yeah. awkward positions that you're grappling in or that you're striking in specifically. So, um, I do a lot of, uh, isometrical holds. I do s- even some calf raises as a general stimulus, and then a lot of ankling jumps just to build capacity. So, yeah.
0: And the only reason I just don't, I think it's, it's overthought of is purely because wrestling shoes are so good nowadays. The, yeah. the high top shoes, as long as you're tying your wrestling shoe well and keeping a, a, a tight tight shoe it's almost like a built-in brace yeah where a lot of ankle a lot of ankle injuries i would argue that a lot of ankle injuries don't occur because of the wrestling shoe and because of the way the shoe is made and, and yeah. all these different manufacturers have done a great job of adding ankle support into them.
1: yeah and it's interesting too. just think of like cross sport um things like like cleats and football or whatever like and in i don't know um some other sports like the harder the cleat is, I get it. The more force you can create on the mm-hmm. ground, and the like, and the the higher the performance will be. But also, the harder that the the shoe or the cleat is, the more forces you're creating, the more exposure to injury that you have. Wrestling shoes are are soft. Wrestling shoes, like you mm-hmm. said, are a built-in brace that that move with your foot. So, um, sorry, I just thought that was a worthy inclusion. I'm talking about
0: wrestling. no, for sure. It, well, like like I said, a lot of people think about the ankle. And in reality, while, while it does get injured, I would say it's, it's not one of the forefront injuries from my, at least my experience and what, what mm-hmm. I see in the research. Most of the time it's going to be that spine or those close and socket joints. Right. But yeah, that is, I'm sorry. I won't make you guys listen to me talk about healthcare anymore. <laughs>
1: Hope but Hopefully it's useful for the doctors out there. I think it's useful in general. I think a lot of people, one, are struggling with that themselves and say like, I always have hip back pain from my shot. Like, the, you know, yeah they hear this and they have a little better understanding of why or how that works and then go to somebody to hopefully have it addressed and don't try and just address it from what you've heard here today um but yeah i think i think it's still beneficial for a lot of people to hear i think people love to hear it and i know you love to talk so it's a win-win i do i I do love to talk it's not it's not a win-win-win though because i'm i'm kind of the lay person just watching
0: that's fine. I'm okay with I'm okay with me winning.
1: <laughs> I know. Awesome. I know.
0: Uh so this is building a fighter. Please like, share, subscribe, do all the cool stuff that allow us to expand our reach and become friends with your friends. Cause we want to be that voice that talks in the living room and tells people about cool MMA stuff. It's a little creepy, but it's all right. So cool. It's okay. It's okay. Alexa. I'm okay being building creepy. a fighter. Yeah, that would be dope. Yeah, do that. What Alex just said, do that <laughs> and That's video true. it. Um But if you have any questions, please contact us. If you want to talk more, obviously, I can talk for days about healthcare based around a a shot. So if you need more info, I got you. Um, But if you got to ask anything about these podcasts, all of our information is going to be in the show notes. Um, We also have our website up. As you've said in previous podcasts, we have, funny enough, a low back and grappling course, uh, as well as different programming options, whether it be individualized, uh, preset, and or team in nature. So check out the website if you're looking for any sort of strength conditioning program. And as always, building a fighter, Dr. Austin Shing,
1: Alex Treven, and we are out.